Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Strickland. This is an independent, ad-free, listener-supported podcast. To become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. I am extremely excited about today's guest. Uh, Douglas Wolk is actually somebody that I am privileged to know, like as a human being in real life. And he is one of the smartest people um, that I have ever had a conversation with. He undertook a amazing task, and that was to read every Marvel comic. Marvel comics have been going for over half a century now, well over half a century now, depending on how you count. And he read all of them. Uh, and he wrote a book about it called All the Marvels. It is out today, October 12th, uh, 2021. And when I talked to Douglas, I wanted to talk to him about how the Marvel Universe, a fictional universe with mutants and vigilantes and vampires and aliens and magic and just everything, every kind of thing that you can think of from genre fiction, handles the real world. So we talk about war, civil rights, uh, race, AIDS, uh, crime, all kinds of things, and how it was viewed through the lens uh, of the Marvel Universe throughout its over half a century of history. Douglas is an amazingly intelligent guy. I love doing this interview, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. Douglas Wolk, hello. Hello, Joe. How are you doing today? I'm hanging in there like a kitten on a motivational poster from the 70s. Awesome. So uh, your book, All the Marvels, is one of the more... Um, ambitious things that I've heard about recently. Uh, what is it? How would you sum it up? So it is a book about reading all 27,000 Marvel superhero comics published between 1961 and 2017 or so, although it kind of goes a little further than that, and looking at the shape of what that half million page story looks like as a single narrative and as kind of a funhouse mirror of the last 60 years of mostly American culture. Okay. How long did that take you to do? <laughs> it took a long time. So the whole project took about five years to research and write start to finish. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was going to be less. It ended up kind of eating my life for a long time. It wasn't all I was do doing during those five years, but it, it took a while. There was a lot of reading. A lot. Yeah. Has has anyone else read as many Marvel comics as you have? So I think there are two or three other people who have read everything. Uh, they are, you know, I'm I'm protecting their names for you know witness protection reasons. Okay, uh, but uh, there there are a few other people who I know have done it or come close or tried to and pretty much made it. Awesome. Uh, anyway, I am I am honored to be speaking with uh, the world authority on Marvel Comics today. Mm, I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, you're up there. You're up there. Uh, what I wanted to talk to you today, though, uh, about was how the Marvel Comics universe has existed alongside and intersected with the real world, because I think one of the appeals of Marvel Comics is that it's been pretty grounded. Yeah. Um, yeah, for instance, in the first issue of Fantastic Four, they're not even wearing superhero uniforms. Um, Spider-Man, he's defined by his kind of like real life relatable struggles. And so I wanted to ask you about 
how that kind of um, superhero world kind of works with our world. And like, this is a history podcast. So like real world historical events. And the first thing I want to ask you about was how has the Marvel universe um, grappled with uh, World War II? How has that, what influence did that have on it? And how did it influence its creators? And what role did it play in, in the comics creation? Well, pretty much since the beginning of comics, like uh, American superhero comics, 1939, 1938, 1939 is when they start. The mm-hmm. first Marvel comic is called Marvel Comics Number 1. It's published in 1939. And at that time, like, you know, people could already see what was what was coming. The first issue of Captain America by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby was published, uh, had a cover date of January, February uh, 1941, which meant it would have been published in December 1940. And Captain America is punching Hitler on the jaw on the cover of the first issue. Like it is specifically an argument for the US to get into World War II a year before Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I've always thought of that issue as kind of existing alongside Casablanca yeah. as like popular media that was basically like agitation for the US to enter the war. So would you say that the creators of that comic book were kind of like, they were saying like, yes, we need to like get involved to stop the Nazis. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. It was like two New York Jews from immigrant families and they had real strong opinions on the subject. And there's this plot that you see over and over in the early Captain America comics about Nazi fifth columnists coming over to sabotage America to like bomb, you know, military supply factories and such in America. This was a persistent fear. Like it mm-hmm. just keeps coming up. It's like this cultural fascination. It's amazing to see that. Uh, there are a lot of comics from around that time that don't necessarily have a lot to do with the war. It's always kind of going on as like, noise in the background because that's what was going on as noise in the background of the people who were making the comics and stan lee who uh started out at marvel as more well or timely as it was then called it had a bunch of different names but was an intern for a while was working the office and then was kind of a low-level editor uh and then was like off in a camp in new jersey officially working for the military as a playwright he was one of uh, very few people who was actually employed as a playwright. That was his, that was his role uh, was also like sneakily writing a couple scripts for uh, <laughs> his old company. in in, uh, in the meantime, you know, he pops up for cameo appearances himself on panel a few times in there, but then he comes back from the war and everybody's coming back from the war. And suddenly the comics don't have quite so much to do with the war anymore. Mm-hmm. Partly that's because by 1946 or so, superhero comics are going out of fashion. There are not very many of them being published. By the end of the decade, like Captain America changes its title to Captain America's Weird Tales for a couple of issues, uh, and then becomes a horror comic, and then it dies. Um, and Captain America doesn't get seen anywhere for six or seven years, at which point there's a revival in the mid-50s where suddenly he's like Captain America commie smasher. And suddenly we're into the Cold War and everything is about like OMG stuff behind the Iron Curtain. So scary. 
So this is maybe getting a bit far afield, but hasn't that version of Captain America, Kami Smasher, wasn't he retconned into a villain in later Captain America comics? He was very, very cleverly. Okay. Uh, because, uh, well, you know, we'll jump ahead. We'll jump back. Sure, sure. Uh, in 1963, when Captain America starts appearing again in the Avengers, like it's the whole thing. It's just like in the movie, like he's near the end of world war ii there was an explosion he was frozen in an iceberg he's been out of the picture well there had been captain america comics published through the end of world war ii and beyond and then this like commie smashing incarnation in the 50s and the question is like so who was running around in that outfit at the time doing all this and the answer that steve Englehart came up with in the early 70s when he was writing captain america was those were respectively a different couple of guys who decided to be Captain America because you couldn't go saying like, oh, you know, our national symbol of the war effort just got killed. So <laughs> they sent in a replacement. And then there was the commie smashing one in the 50s who took the wrong version of the serum that turned little scrawny 4F guy into Captain America. And it gradually turned them into these white supremacists like him and his Bucky. So you see him running around in 1972 or 73 saying like, Oh yeah, we started to see, you know, communist traders everywhere where pe most people didn't see them like in Harlem and Watts. <laughs> oh and my. It, yeah. It's, it's very much a commentary on how the anti-communist fervor of the fifties could just turn really really horribly sour yeah uh what a coincidence that they would be that a communist would be in harlem and watts of all yeah. places yeah of all places where they would be hiding out uh yeah that's an extremely clever retcon yeah yeah uh did you read many of the captain america commie smasher comics themselves there are not that many of them okay there's like three issues of that. And then he's in like half a dozen issues of the series that ran in the mid fifties called young men, which had Captain Sorry. America and, and human torch and submariner stories. And it's also the comic that established that the way that world war two ended in the Marvel universe is that the original human torch burst into Hitler's bunker and burned him to death. That is awesome. Yeah. Um, and for folks who are unfamiliar with it, the original human torch is not the fantastic four guy. Right. It's a, a a sort of robot dude. Yeah. Yeah. He's an android, but also like not an android. Kind of, sort of. He goes by Jim Hammond sometimes. He's still kind of floating around. Okay. So the Marvel Universe, you said, um, like, uh, for your book and for a lot of people, when they think about it, it starts in 1961 um, with Fantastic Four, number one, right? Ish. I mean, I, I okay. have... I have a whole argument that says otherwise, but for, for practical purposes, let's say Fantastic Four number one. Okay. That's a good starting point. Okay. And that's a space race comic. It sure is. It is a space race comic, and it's also kind of a atomic bomb testing moratorium comic, which the Hulk is even more, and the Hulk is mm -hmm. just a few months after that. But uh, it, it is a, we have to get a rocket up, what are we going to do kind of comic. Yeah. And uh, does that end up, does that end up like playing out in the Fantastic Four story after that? Because I think a lot of people are familiar with the story about how they go up in a rocket, cosmic rays, they get power, they come down. But 
is there kind of like consequences that they beat the commies to space or anything like that? Or is that something that, um, you know, resonates for their story at all? Or is it just like, uh, we, there was a way to get them powers. It, it seems to have been in practice, a way to get the powers. There's okay. not some, there's not so much space race stuff after that. Although very interestingly, like 1983 or so John Byrne did a revision of that story, a, a what if story where the idea is like, what if they actually thought for a minute and did put in the right shielding in their rocket and weren't so worried about like, we have to get up right now this minute. And you know, two months later, their rocket goes up and they're fine. And six months after that, the earth is a spacefaring planet. <laughs> <laughs> so not only all- did we beat, not only did the U S beat the commies, but like suddenly we're, we're an intergalactic civilization. So if only Reed Richards had not been consumed with hubris and trying to beat Russia to space, we would be doing great. Reed Richards is terrible. Okay. (laughs) Well, doesn't he, I know this is also getting uh, on (laughs) later on, doesn't he become not only a um, like world spanning, but like multiversal supervillain at some point? There's a different version of him who does. Um, Okay. Yeah. There's, there's lots of parallel universes. Our universe, by the way, is uh, Earth 1218. Okay. Yes, the the physical world we are in right now. The physical world we are in, on which we are speaking right now, is Earth twelve eighteen, uh, which was destroyed about six years ago. Okay, uh, but then reconstructed exactly as it was. Um, how are those designations assigned? By the way, is there any kind of rhyme or reason about from six one six twelve eighteen, um, and I don't know the one where the Avengers all have beards. I forget what that one is. There is not. I think uh, they mostly just get assigned by somebody who's got a book and it's like okay what numbers haven't we used already so marvel comics really starts getting going in the 1960s and you have a lot going on like vietnam you have civil rights you have protests um you have again you already mentioned atomic testing with the hulk um how do those events show up in marvel comics uh throughout the 60s and into the 70s they show up all the time. They show up as subtext. They show up as text. Uh, there's, you know, we talk about in the Hulk, like the Hulk is at a moment that where it's not just cultural concern about atomic testing. It is a moment when the atomic testing moratorium has just ended very, very recently. And suddenly everybody's blowing stuff up again. Mm-hmm. And there is that specific race, like who can come up with the better bomb. Uh, we see Iron Man, who is specifically like an arms manufacturer. Like he is an industrialist. He is the military industrial complex. He is making weapons. That is his entire job. And at, by 1967 or so, like he's going to Vietnam. There's a story called Within the Vastness of Vietnam, where he's, you know, going over and uh, <clears throat> has troops practicing shooting at him. And then it just goes off into this completely other kind of thing. But th- there's an encounter with a bunch of Viet Cong who are like hiding out in a tree for some reason. And uh, he says, Oh, well, you know, this will give you something to talk about at the next peace through strength rally. Like peace through strength is not a phrase that was associated with the Viet Cong. Peace through strength is a phrase that I believe Barry Goldwater used when he was endorsing Richard Nixon. Okay. This is weird. Yeah. Yeah, sure. is. like there's, but it's floating around in the atmosphere like it's a phrase that suggests something and it just kind of floats into the comics that way uh, as you get into this the through the 60s and into the 70s 
the cultural attitude about the Vietnam War changes real fast. Mm-hmm. You know, by 1966 or so, some of the characters are graduating from high school. You know, Flash Thompson like enlists. Peter Parker's you know tormentor in high school like enlists in the army, and suddenly he's over in the army and he's coming back every so often. Patsy Walker's boyfriend Buzz Baxter also enlists. And then six months later, there's just this story where like he's gotten wounded very badly. Something terrible has happened to him and he's coming back and he, he won't even speak to Patsy. Like he's just so traumatized. He can't even talk about it. This is in a teen humor comic, Patsy Walker. Mm-hmm. So this might be a, a strange thing to ask about something that is now like the biggest media thing on planet earth, basically. But during this time, Marvel comics, they're not mainstream. Would you say that they are countercultural? They had aspirations to being countercultural. Okay. They got embraced by part of the counterculture mm-hmm. and they were cool with that. But most, they just wanted to move units. Like they, okay. they <laughs> like, um, they had artistic aspirations, but, more than anything, they had commercial aspirations and whoever wanted to pick up on them, they were totally cool with that. Yeah, I'm asking in part because um, I am old enough to have like a pretty coherent vision of Woodstock. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm not old enough to have been there. I'm not that old. But like growing up uh, as a teenager in the 90s, it was like, oh, the 60s were a cool decade and you had all this great music. I'm going to like look at all these old anthologies from back then. And one image that stuck in my head is of a guy reading an incredible Hulk comic lounging around at Woodstock. I can believe I'm, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and doesn't Woodstock also show up in Marvel itself? Didn't like, it I does. It does a couple times. It does in a romance comic. Uh-huh. Uh, which is, you know, I, I, it's some sort of like, I lost my love at Woodstock kind of thing. Um, it's there, there's uh, there are a number of romance stories that involve music festivals that are kind of close to Woodstock. There's one, the one in particular that is a Woodstock story it was written by a guy named uh, Gary Friedrich, who had been to Woodstock. He was full on hippie type country Joe and the fish actually appear in that country Joe and the fish also appear in a Nick Fury story. He wrote around that time uh, where Nick Fury is assassinated at a free concert in central park where country Joe and the fish are playing for some reason. Uh, You know, this is, this is the setting of the time. This is also around the time when Jan Wenner made like a guest appearance in daredevil. So, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, do we know if country Joe and the fish knew about this comic and do we know what they thought about it? Uh, we assume they knew about it. Uh, I know that they visited the Marvel office at some point. I don't have any idea what they thought about it, but there is a sense that like Woodstock is out there and Woodstock is more likely to show up in a romance comic because it's something that tween girls had anxieties about. Mm-hmm. Like they were fascinated and interested and what does this mean? And should I be worrying about this? And so that's where that particular story shows up um there's not a lot of well, i guess there's there's some there's some rock festivals in in uh, the superhero comics too but uh what's happening outside in in the culture that the writers belong to is reflected in the stuff that comes out in the comics so if it's jack kirby and he's you know, watching gangster movies and episodes of the prisoner on tv suddenly there are 
1920s gangsters and also a setting that looks an awful lot like the village from the prisoner turning up in fantastic four if it's gary friedrich or denny o'neill or some of the uh, younger hipper types who were working at marvel at that point then like the stuff that they cared about will turn up in some form in the stories and if it's Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, who are just reading the newspapers and watching the TV, you'll see student demonstrations in the stories. And if Ditko is drawing them, he is not crazy at all about student demonstrators. Ditko is already pretty far right wing by the time he's finishing up his Spider-Man run. And Lee, who's always the sort of like, can't we just meet at the center kind of guy, is writing dialogue to try to soften that blow a little bit. And have Peter Parker maybe come up less of a uh, button-down prig than Ditko might have wanted him to be. Yeah, so Steve Ditko, he also created the question, right? Yeah. And didn't he create the question to basically be a mouthpiece for his politics? I mean, a lot of his characters are mouthpieces for his politics one okay. way or another. Like he's He was a hardcore Ayn Rand nerd. All right. Maybe I'm thinking about that because when I think of the question, I think of Rorschach and Rorschach is kind of like yes. a parody, sla- parody satire. But also I know that there are lots of dudes who look at Rorschach and actually think he's cool. Yeah. Which, yeah it's kind is, of a problem. Right. <laughs> totally yeah. a problem. Um, ha- speaking of demonstrations, though, the civil rights movement is happening w- during the like first decades of Marvel Comics. Does that show up in print at all? And if so, how, how is it handled? Is it is it cringe, as the kids say? It can be cringe. It can also be not so cringe at all. Okay. I mean, you start seeing integrated casts. Mm-hmm. Uh, used pretty early on, relatively speaking, compared to what else is going on in American culture. Um, Sergeant Fury's Howling Commandos, like there's a black guy and there's a gay coded but they never come out and say it guys and so forth um there's uh in spider-man you see uh robbie robertson or joe robertson who's the city editor of the daily bugle uh who starts appearing in that role about six months before the first city edit black city editor of a big american newspaper uh shows up and that i believe is the oregonian oh um yeah (laughs) Um, and then Black Panther turns up and Black Panther is not the first African-American superhero Marvel publishes. He is the first black superhero that Marvel publishes because he's African. Right. He's Wakandan. And he turns up in a very kind of like, we've thought about this and we've prepped this and this is going to make a splash kind of way in 1966 in Fantastic Four, uh, number 52. Uh, and he's wearing a full face mask on the cover. So you can't tell he's black necessarily, but he's called the Black Panther right, right there from the beginning. And the story makes it real clear, like that's who he is. It is a couple of years after that, that we see the first African-American Marvel superhero character. That's the Falcon uh, who turns up in Captain America. And before too long, Captain America is re- renamed Captain America and the Falcon. And you start getting to see like, multiple page scenes where it's all black people talking to each other mm-hmm. in a slightly cringe way, um, but like talking about civil rights stuff. Yeah. I guess I, I guess I put it that way because I was thinking like, okay, this is going to be a, 
you know, primarily white creators yeah, in, a sure white, in, in a business that's owned mostly by white people, mm-hmm. um, you know, putting words in the mouths of like black characters whom they imagine. And like, how long did it take Marvel to actually get black creators on board for a lot of that type of thing? A few more years. Uh, an artist named Billy Graham was the first black artist to do a lot of work for, for Marvel. And he starts drawing and often co-plotting the Black Panther feature in, you want to hear cringe, the Black Panther features in the early 70s appearing in a comic called Jungle Action. Out! Wow. Yeah. Uh, but Billy Graham is drawing that. Uh, Don McGregor is writing it, but they're collaborating. Engelhart, Steve Engelhart is writing uh, the Luke Cage Hero for Hire series, starting with about the fifth issue. And Billy Graham is sometimes penciling it, sometimes inking it. And Engelhart says, pretty much always involved creatively on the plotting side of things. Actual black writers, people writing the dialogue, doesn't happen until the early 1980s when Jim Owsley, who later changes his name to Christopher Priest, comes in and uh, writes a Falcon miniseries and then starts writing a whole bunch of other stuff. He writes uh, in the late, in the late nineties, he writes the black Panther series, that an awful lot of the black Panther movie draws on. And he's also like the editor of the Spider-Man line for a while and writes a bunch of Spider-Man stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, I want to go back to uh, black Panther's introduction though. Yeah. Because doesn't black Panther, the character predate the black Panther party. He does. Uh, the timing is close enough actually that it seems like it was probably a coincidence that they were named that. Okay. When I've Jack, always wondered about this. Yeah. Um, there's, there's not really. So Kirby starts developing a character who was originally going to be named the coal tiger. Okay. Um, number one, like you want to talk cringe. That's kind of a cringe name. Number two, there are no tigers indigenous to Africa. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this uh this eventually becomes black panther uh he's got the the design evolves i mean kirby and lee are working on this for a while to work it up around the same time the black panther image starts being used uh in alabama by stokely carmichael mm-hmm. and uh the the political party that he's organizing and yeah the timing is just they both came up at a, basically the same time and eventually that became clear in the late 60s. There's a little period where Marvel suddenly gets cold feet about having a character called Black Panther because Black Panther Party is in headlines at this point. So for a while, uh, he's called just the Panther or the Black Leopard. And within about a year, that, no, he, he's the Black Panther. We're just going to go with it. Okay. Uh yeah. Did they deal with the name change on the page at all? Or did they just sort of like wave their hands, like say he's Black Leopard for reasons? Is it addressed in the text? It is addressed in the text a little bit. Uh, he says, like, uh, well, I don't want to say I approve or disapprove of what anybody else is doing, but I'm my own person. Okay, fine. Uh, and then I think when he goes back to being Black Panther, it is without comment just like yeah we're just gonna go with that okay fascinating yeah so we're kind of like 
progressing on. And when I think about the um, 1970s, <laughs> something that I think about a lot is how there was a great deal of anxiety in American media about crime, um, the status of American streets, um, about integration, about corruption, and about groups like the police not having enough power to push back. Uh, I'm thinking basically about Dirty Harry and uh, that whole sort of strain of American culture. And is it is it right to say that that kind of shows up in Marvel too with things like The Punisher and Daredevil? Is there sort of a version of like the sort of death wish ideology, that kind of like dystopian view of American streets, it's also there. Or am I or am I off on this? No, I think I think it's fair to say that. I think it's fair to say that it shows up later. Okay. The the Punisher turns up in 73, 74, something like that. Uh he is a minor supporting character for ten years. He turns oh. up from time to time. I'll also admit that like um, you have read much more Marvel than I. I have. When I think of the Punisher, I mostly think of his Marvel Max run and the story oh, yeah. of Welcome Back, Frank, which I know is much, much later. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, yes, I'm thinking about like the comics that I know of as opposed to the comics that I read. What when I go on this? But go on, the Punisher. He shows up in '73 and he's, he's a supporting character for a while. He's a supporting character. He gets a couple of solo stories, which are basically about how his family was killed in mob crossfire. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of massacres that happen in mob crossfire historically. Like if innocent people getting caught in mob cross, like that's not, that's not really a thing that happens so much, but okay, fine. That's, that's the setup. And he's out to, you know, like take care of the people that the police won't take care of. Uh, by the eighties, this has become his character. And uh, Frank Miller actually uses him in daredevil in the early eighties to kind of contrast with daredevil, who's literally a lawyer. Like he is literally like the law guy. Right. Uh, in the mid '80s, the Punisher gets his own miniseries where he just gets to be Dirty Harry, extremist, like blowing blowing drug dealers away. Uh, and a year after that, he gets his ongo- ongoing series, which is written for a while by a guy named Mike Barron, who very interesting writer, really skillful writer, did a lot of kind of ripped from the headlines kind of stories. Like let's do a poison Tylenol story. Let's do a, you know, uh, things like that. Let's do a like, Jesse Helms, uh, flag burning rapper story. Uh, they're not always the best stories, but like he's an interesting plotter and they are presented from the perspective of like the Punisher is the one who's going to stand up for what's right because the police won't do anything and the justice system is completely corrupt and only only this person can save us. Uh, the climax of all that, uh, it, or nadir maybe we can call it, is mm-hmm. uh, there's... A, I'm jumping ahead here again because I want to get back to Watergate and stuff. But Oh, go ahead. <laughs> in 1991... There's the Punisher number 47 caption on the cover is caught in a desert storm. Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's April 91 issue. So it would have come out in February operation desert storm. and started that January on the cover. Uh, the cover is credited to four different artists and the Punisher is fighting a group of men who are all scowling bearded wearing cafe and waving scimitars around. Scimitars. <laughs> you know this. This was this was where this comic was coming from. And if you look at the uh, 
letters in the letter column, there's a one letter to the Punisher around that time where he's complimenting an artist who drawn that drawn a recent issue and says, you know, seeing Russ Heath's artwork makes me forget the Japanese artist for at least 20 minutes, a true American art master. Like the Japanese G- artist. Wow. Who, who's that? That has to be Jim Lee. Jim Lee is Korean American. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm th- this, this will not be, you know, clear in podcast form, but I'm making holding my head with my hands gestures. Um, yeah, I guess I'm asking about this because when I think about the Punisher, I think about him as a figure that kind of represents some of the worst political like strains in American culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he kind of lives in the same sort of world as Daredevil, but as a very different figure. Exactly. Um, and how do you make him make this? This is going from, you know, this is going from exposition to commentary, but how do you like make him a protagonist? without making him god i wish i had a better word to reach for extremely problematic is there a way to do that i mean he just is extremely problematic he just is um the one thing that i've seen people do especially in the last 10 years or so is really lean into how deeply horribly messed up he is Mm -hmm. you know see him just like going to the store and demanding his usual from his news agent which is a stack of guns and ammo and porn magazines uh in reverse chronological order filed just the way you like it frank please don't hurt me (laughs) he's he's you can't make him unproblematic without making him really unsympathetic right yeah um i will admit in the second season of the daredevil television show on netflix Uh, I did like the way that they portrayed him because he didn't seem to be an aspirational figure. He was obviously really damaged and he didn't seem cool. Um, But I don't know if you can keep that up with an ongoing protagonist. Unless you just want to have like, hey, hey, everyone, it's like the miserable character again, which I guess you can do ad infinitum, but it doesn't seem appealing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's the Punisher is not my favorite. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I mean, I was I thought it was funny when he turned into a Frankenstein. That was great. Yeah, I like I like when he turned into a Frankenstein. Yeah. So how did how did um, going back again to the nineteen seventies? You mentioned Watergate. Yeah. And Watergate is kind of this big juicy thing in Marvel comics. Mm-hmm. There is one particular event that I am thinking of that happens there around sure Watergate. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'll just throw it to you. Like, how does Marvel comics handle Watergate? So we see Watergate showing up in little textual forms for a while. We'll see a reference to, you know, Daredevil's Billy Club twisting slowly, slowly in the wind. Um, well, there's a, a couple scenes where uh, there's you know, somebody cursing and it'll say expletive deleted. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, which is you, you may want to explain the context for that. I mean, it's the uh, when Nixon's uh, White House tapes were made public, um, rather than you know publishing as swears, a lot of newspapers would just print expletive deleted, and then the transcript would go on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there, there's there's a lot of that. that you know, Nixon had been showing up as a character since 1968 or so because 
that's what that's what presidents do in Marvel. Like they show up when you meet this when you show the president, and he'd usually say something like, "Let me make it perfectly clear," something like that. Um, there were lots of throwaway uh, references to his kind of vice presidential troubles, but where it all comes to a head is a story called "The Secret Empire" that was in Captain America in uh, 1974, where there's this massive national criminal cartel. Uh, headed by the mysterious number one, who ends up being unmasked in the White House. And it's clearly not shown on panel, but it's clearly Richard Nixon, who is the head of the secret empire. And he's unmasked on panel and then kills himself in the Oval Office in an issue published three months before Nixon resigned. <laughs> Magnificent. Like, that's how the Nixon administration ended in the Marvel Universe. I love it. Um also, in the Marvel Universe, the president of the United States is usually the same person as whoever is president in real life. Yeah. Yeah, I'm contrasting that with DC, where right. like in the DC universe, you can have an entirely different president who's sometimes Lex Luthor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you can have other people sort of in charge in Marvel. There's a wonderful sequence from uh, 2009 where... It's called Dark Reign, where Obama is president, but you barely see Obama. Mm-hmm. What you see is the person who's running things, which is Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, like uh, the guy who killed Spider-Man's girlfriend, uh, who has, you know, done his time and reformed and now ascended to political power and is now controlling everything having to do with superheroes in the government. And so his presence is always there. Like you can always feel him, even when the story isn't directly about him. It's like, but Osborne is in charge and what are we going to do? Um, and this is during the first year of the Obama administration. It feels like the Trump administration. Huh. Except with Norman Osborne as a Trump figure. Exactly. I mean, that sounds terrifying, but also I'll be honest, Norman Osborne seems maybe somewhat more competent. And has... Yeah, uh, that that's that's <laughs> kind of the, the wrinkle in that story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching uh, Justice League Unlimited. Um, early in the Trump administration and uh, Ra's al Ghul and Lex Luthor were basically running the world. And I was like, this seems like a good alternative. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and Dr. But, Doom also ran the world for a little while, but uh, decided that uh, he, he couldn't handle the paperwork and gave it up. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's tragic for him because, you know, <sighs> anyway, yeah. um, when we were discussing this, like prior to recording, you also mentioned a story in Daredevil about Gerald Ford cutting off funding to yes. a lot of American cities. What happened there? So, oh, so there was there's there's a couple things I was conflating there. There was the actual thing that happened around 1976, where New York City was in financial trouble, and uh, Ford refused to bail New York out. And so there's a famous New York Post headline, Ford to City Drop Dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a story that happens in Daredevil a little bit after that, because there's always a little bit of lead time where there's like a deep fake going on with uh, (laughs) Ford, I think, suggesting that uh, people take revenge on the police and on superheroes and they don't represent you and just go, go attack them. Uh, Ford doesn't get to do a whole lot in Marvel's comics. Jimmy Carter gets a little bit more. 
uh, on panel time. Uh, he he uh, does get to negotiate with Dr. Doom some and try to quote Bob Dylan until uh, Doom bellows silence. Um, was Jimmy Carter negotiating with Dr. Doom? Was that kind of a riff on Carter brokering peace between Israel and Egypt? or was I, that- I think it actually predated that. Okay. Uh, there are a bunch of stories where they're addressing the energy crisis one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, Captain America. I mean, Captain America is where a lot of these stories show show up because it's the series where you're kind of taking the temperature of what the state of the nation is, right? Right. Uh, but there's also like a Marvel team-up story where what's going on in the background for the whole story is Jimmy Carter giving a speech about the energy crisis, which is very earnest, very like beautifully rhetorical and appears to have been original to that comic. Hmm. It's just a piece of atmosphere of the, the kind of thing that we might be experiencing. Okay. So one group that we have not mentioned yet much at all are mm-hmm. the X-Men. And uh-huh. uh, I think the X-Men have, are of particular interest here because they're a metaphor. Like you can use the mutant metaphor to represent, um, you know, racial minorities, which is kind of awkward with a comic that originally had an all white cast. Yeah. Uh, you can use it to represent queer people. Um, I know that, uh, you know, over on another pad- podcast, Jay and Miles explained the X-Men. Uh, Jay has said that one of the best metaphors where it fits like in the least awkward way is talking about, you know, the mutant metaphor and disability rights. Um but they end up having a pretty long protracted AIDS metaphor in their comic. They do. Yeah. What is the legacy virus? <sighs> what is the legacy virus? Don't we all don't we all wish we knew? Uh, the legacy virus is a virus that only kills mutants and leads to mutants being stigmatized because it only kills them and maybe also kills one other person who we don't think is a mutant at the time and doesn't actually kill all that many people. But there's this idea of OMG virus, it's coming for us all and terrible sacrifices will have to be made to protect us from this virus. There's also a techno-organic virus that's going around a a little bit earlier than that. There's a lot lot of viruses that that are happening in Marvel around this time. Uh, Trying to read a specific metaphor into X-Men is usually a mistake. Okay. Uh, there's this idea that, you know, Professor X and Magneto are Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And I, no, I no, don't no, like no, that no, metaphor. no, no, I don't like that metaphor one bit. Um, <laughs> there are lots of reasons why that's a terrible metaphor. But in fact, nobody would have thought of applying that metaphor until maybe the late 1970s which is where Magneto, who is the guy who has always been the arch villain in X-Men comics, suddenly starts getting a slightly more sympathetic portrayal and a slightly more sympathetic backstory, actually significantly more sympathetic backstory. Like you can get a sense of why he is the way he is. And it is no longer that he is, quote, evil, like when he's introduced, he's running the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, quote, end quote. Um, and that goes that goes away. That gets to a Magneto who has a really different ideology about what's right for 
the group he belongs to than other people do. And it's an ideological struggle, not a good versus evil struggle, mm-hmm. which is much more interesting than the good versus evil struggle in a lot of ways. But it made people think like, oh, uh, so it's just like this thing that it's really not like at all. And it must always have been like this thing that it's really not like at all. And it must have been conceived to be like this that it's really not like at all. If you try to apply that, if you try to apply any kind of these are two big figures within a given community and this is the ideological conflict between them, it just falls apart the moment you try to map one onto the other. Right. But the idea of there being an ideological conflict within a community, like that's broad enough that you could do a lot of things with that. Sorry, what were you saying? Oh, I was saying that um, I do not think that Charles Xavier is very much like Martin Luther King Jr. at all. No. <laughs> like, I know that uh, as a man, MLK did have his personal failings, but I don't think that he would ever um, fake his own death multiple times, uh, wipe people's brains with his psychic powers, or... Uh, send a bunch of mutants to their death on uh, Krakoa in the Necrotia storyline. Yeah, no, um, there's, I mean, there's a little bit in the book about how like, yeah, you know, there's a way to read the beginning of X-Men even this like, no, Professor X is commanding a child army. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you put, when you put it that way, yeah. When you put it that way, it sounds like these stories about like, you know, unlicensed costumed vigilantes are maybe like a little weird. They are. They are. And one one problem with getting as deep into these stories as I have is that you lose sight of how incredibly weird and messed up they are. Yeah. Taking it as a given that uh, somebody is going to go put on a costume and they themselves are going to go punch problems. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask one more thing, though, about yeah. AIDS. Like, didn't it show up in the Hulk as well? It did. Um, the Hulk's old sidekick, Jim, died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and tragic issue, black cover with, you know, like red ribbon on, on the front of it. And this kind of sympathetic concern showing, like, look how much concern we are showing for this important issue is a thing that turns up in popular entertainment a lot. And it turns up a lot in the Marvel story. Like it's the way that that Hulk story and to some extent, other stories around that time handle AIDS is not unsympathetic, but super sentimental. Right. It's like this is, a, this is a tragic and tear jerking thing. We are going to jerk every last tear out of you. I have one more big thing that I want to ask about. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was recently the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Oh, yes. Um, there was also a 9-11 in the Marvel Universe. Or actually, is that canon? Is that comic canon? There, there was a Marvel so, 9-11 comic. There's three Marvel 9-11 comics. So, oh, God, okay. Yeah. And that's not counting the Call of Duty comics that happened afterwards, which are like... We love policemen, we love uh, ambulance operators, and we love firefighters, and we're going to do a series about each of them, and it's going to be great. And those aren't selling, so we're going to telescope them into one series, and then that's going to get canceled real fast because it's really not so good. What? I've never heard of this. Call of D- You're a lucky man. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God. Yes. Th- so there's three 9-11 comics. Uh, there are, there's one called A Moment of Silence, which is for... 
silent stories of 9-11 heroism. Uh, there's one that's just called Heroes, which is magazine size, which is just basically it's just a bunch of pinups. Some of them have text, which are we love the Hulk and we love firefighters. Nodding. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the Amazing Spider-Man number 36, which has an all black cover, comes out about as soon as they could get it out post 9-11. And it is about Spider-Man seeing the site where towers have just collapsed and going, Oh God, this is awful. And all the heroes come in and then everybody comes in and Dr. Doom is on site and sheds a tear across his arm. Bathos, pure bathos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How do you do that in a fictional universe where parts of cities, specifically parts of New York, actually get destroyed with some frequency like that seems to have a kind of disconnect because you can have fin fang foom show up in new york and knock buildings over and no one bats an eye you know because damage control is there to rebuild exactly yeah yeah but you have this in the real world and suddenly dr doom himself is shedding a tear and it just doesn't feel right at all the only thing that felt right in 2001 was to perform sentimental concern to say, yes, this is serious and we feel really bad about it. And this is a really, really big thing. And yeah, like that's how people were feeling. And so that's the only thing you can express. And so you express that, but it is not as Wordsworth, as Wordsworth said, powerful emotion recollected in tranquility. It is Mm -hmm. powerful emotion reflected at the exact time you're feeling it. Right. And, so it's it's interesting because there are people who remember that Spider-Man story as like, yes, this is a peak of like these comics that I've been reading as escapist fantasy, really speaking for me and for what I was feeling. And there are people who look at it and go, I can't believe that this thing was actually made and that somebody thought this was a good idea. And there's there's no right answer. There's no right way out of it. One tiny note you asked if it was canonical. That Spider-Man story is not. It's not. because. Uh, well, it can't be because the Marvel Universe starts about 14 or 15 years before right now, whenever when whenever right now is. Like Fantastic Four number one so that was about 15 years ago. Okay. And so Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four went up in their rocket ships sometime around 2006. And that, you know, Captain America was frozen in the ice flow from 1945 until, you know, 2006, 2007, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, know, I know a lot of characters, their background is also tied to very specific historical events. So you can have... Uh, Reed Richards and Ben Grimm, they're war buddies from World War II, they're war yeah. buddies from like Vietnam, they're war buddies from Iraq, they're war buddies from Afghanistan, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, in some cases, it's just kept moving forward. Like Tony Stark's origin, like Iron Man's origin, especially, it was like, well, um, is it happening in Vietnam? Is it happening in Cambodia? Is it happening in Afghanistan? Does it really matter where it's happening? It was a cave. It was a cave someplace. Mm -hmm. There was a cave and there was a war and that's what's going on. 
about two years ago, there was a proposal that I think Marvel is now running with that uh, there is a war in a fictional country called uh, Sian Kong. Sian Kong, which first appeared as Sin Kong in an issue of Avengers back in the 60s, but Sian Kong. And there was a big war someplace in Asia, and it went on for a while. And Reed Richards and Ben Grimm were involved in it. And actually, Frank Castle was involved in it too. And if you see a reference to World War II or the Korean War or the Vietnam War or the Gulf War as something that is intrinsic to somebody's origin, unless it really has to be World War II, it was, it was Sing Kong. Let's just say it was Sian Kong. Okay. okay. So I, I'm thinking about the implications that, you know, the United <laughs> States is at war enough with countries you know, far and wide that we can just invent a new one. People will be like, Oh yeah, we're bombing somebody and just sort of stick that into your fictional universe. It will track and you will like explain away a whole bunch of continuity. That's incredibly disturbing and also probably accurate. (laughs) Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you really wanted to like get to? I, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but um, I know that you are the guy who's come through all of this. So were there any, um, like nuggets or diamonds in the rough that you found? Oh, I mean, there's, there's so many, I think uh, one of my absolute favorite things is there's a letter to creatures on the loose, which is a horror reprint series. It is reprinting horror stories from the fifties and sixties in 1974, which is just laying into the editors for remaining silent on the topic of Nixon's guilt. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, It is very angry, it is lengthy, and it's printed in Creatures on the Loose. Because that's all anybody could think about right then. You read a monster or horror comic with reprints of stories from 15 years earlier, and you're like, why isn't this talking about topic A? Huh. I think that's fascinating. That Um, is fascinating. And Howard the Duck running for president, this whole thing. Uh, Captain America almost running for president. There's a lot of presidential politics that that went on for a while. Okay. Uh, You know, you mentioned Howard the Duck running for president, and, you know, I can't decide whether he would be a libertarian or democratic socialist. I figure it would be be something like that. Something like that, yes. Something something along those lines, yeah. Yeah. He's definitely fringe. Uh, He is running, he runs with the All Night Party, um, whose slogan is Get Down America, which I did not get as a joke until decades later when I realized, Oh, ducks have down. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, can I ask you to like maybe speculate or pontificate on something? Sure. If, if you had to advise Marvel creators on how to engage with contentious, contentious issues like wars or civil rights or like say black lives matter or you know the u.s pulling out of afghanistan or the coronavirus what advice would you give them based on you going through the past several decades of marvel wow uh i mean there's something to be said for engaging absolutely directly with the thing of the thing itself um that marks your story as a product of its moment. It means you're not writing something timeless. You're not writing something that's going to necessarily make a lot of sense in 15 or 20 years, 
but you're also engaging with the thing that you can't stop thinking about. And that can make for really compelling stories. Englehart on Captain America, again, like uh, he did a story that was practically a, a Symbionese Liberation Army story. I mean, it was slightly, you know, it was fictionalized as the Serpent Squad, but it was it was really like metaphorically pretty clearly a story about the SLA. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can work really well if you're willing to do a thing that is a product of your moment. Um, there is a lot to be said for keeping as open a mind as possible, erring on the side of compassion, mm-hmm. which I think is a thing that like, Marvel hasn't even erred on the side of compassion. Like it is consistently taken the compassionate side a lot of the time. In 20, uh, I guess 2013 or so, we see Kamala Khan pop up. Like, right. Uh, like Pakistani American Muslim Ms. Marvel living in Jersey City. And she's an absolutely fantastic character. And the moment when it was still maybe a little bit contentious to make that a character, but she's a great, great character. And she's and written, around and now there's going to be a TV writer. Written by a Muslim writer. Um, and edited by a Pakistani-American Muslim editor, mm-hmm. San Amanat. Uh, and it's lovely. It's wonderful. It's hugely fun. Like, it's terrific as a story. And now there's going to be a TV show of it. Like, that's that's a beautiful thing to do you can take the raw material of your moment and you can turn it into a metaphor. You can turn it into background noise. You can turn it into raw material for stories and it's always going to show up one way or another. Might as well go with that. Like there's a lot, there's a lot to be said for turning reality into something that doesn't quite resemble reality, but makes for fuel for fiction. When does the book come out and where can people find it? Uh, book is all the Marvels: A Journey to the End, a Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. It's published by Penguin Press. It comes out October twelfth. You can find it at bookstores everywhere. Awesome, Douglas. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Joe. Hope you folks enjoyed that. Again, all the Marvels. It is out today, October twelfth. Uh, please do order it from your friendly and local independent bookstore. And as always, the Weird History Podcast is. Written, recorded, and produced by me, Joe Streckert. Our website and visual assets are by Sarah Giffro of Upswept Creative. We are recorded in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Please do rate and review us if you have a chance. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.